you would open to Ecclesiastes. It's roughly in the middle of the Bible. We'll be looking today at chapter 1, beginning in verse 12 through chapter 2. Now, this morning we're going to look into the Word of God in a book that is often passed over, thought to be a bit off, confusing, contradictory to other parts of Scripture, and possibly best ignored much of the time as we flip from the pages of Proverbs and make our way over to Isaiah. The word Ecclesiastes, which is the title of the book, is translated within the text as the preacher. But it is also similarly consistent with something like the speaker or the president or the spokesman or even the philosopher. But our speaker today from the book will be the preacher. Now the confusion I refer to sometimes created for readers is due to the fact that it appears to often ignore God and speak only of human activity devoid of a creator, then turn and point directly to him. Many read it and feel depressed by an empty earthly life it describes, but ultimately, if read correctly, is actually an excellent encouragement for us to persevere through life, our Christian lives, which are naturally filled with endless adversities. People are first quickly put off balance when they read the very beginning of this book since it starts out with vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. As it speaks of our apparently meaningless life here on this earth. So it starts right off seeming to contradict much of the rest of the ultimately hopeful message of Scripture. Now when we read passages in Ecclesiastes, it sometimes seems to be contradicting itself and other times to be contradicting what we know as Christians, mostly from reading the New Testament. But as with the rest of Scripture, God here is present, active, judging, to be feared, what is confirmed in the New Testament. But in many ways, the preacher here only gives part of the knowledge and understanding needed. In some places in this book, God might seem to be dimly seen. But actually, this passage today gives several opportunities to look forward to the New Testament where Jesus and the apostles give a fuller understanding so that we can have a greater wisdom in loving and knowing Christ. Like many Old Testament, Testament passages, this one tells a story so it is a bit longer than usual. And so we begin in verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. 
and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, It is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and have slaves were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was the reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly for what can the man do who comes after the king only what has already been done? And I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who is toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? 
For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Father, thank you today for your perfect word here. Help us, Lord, to understand what the preacher is trying to tell us about our lives, about God, about the world that we see around us. And help me, God, to expose this word properly. Give us ears to hear that ultimately, somehow, God, it might point to Christ, to our salvation in Him. And God, may you be glorified this morning. Amen. Now, when I first became a Christian and came to this book as I devoured the Bible, I was very perplexed and it slowed me down considerably. I was amazed and thought, how did this preacher know all about my life before Christ and describe it so perfectly? It drove me to purchase my very first Bible commentary in the hopes of understanding it. But since the commentator would often admit to his own perplexity, it became a very challenging task to fully grasp it. Now since I knew that God's word is without flaw, is his ultimate expression of himself to us along with Jesus, then it must be true that whatever it does say is extremely important. But Sidney Greidenus of Calvin Theological Seminary says in the very first sentence of his exhaustive book on Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes may be the most difficult biblical book to interpret and preach. And at the same point he says, small wonder that many preachers consider it the better part of wisdom to omit Ecclesiastes from their preaching schedule. And during the preparation of this sermon, the archives of several well-known preachers with long tenures in the pulpit were reviewed, yet Ecclesiastes was not to be found anywhere. But Martin Luther said, we should read this noble little book every day precisely because it so firmly rejects sentimental religiosity. One of the reasons people are troubled, if you will, by this book is because of its seeming internal contradictions. For example, at one point, Ecclesiastes says, there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Then later it says, but it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow. So which is it? But what is actually happening here is that the preacher is purposely introducing seeming contradictions to offset our confusing observations of life here on earth under the sun, meaning apart from God, as contrasted with faith in God. So we do observe that often evil people live long, prosperous lives, yet we who have faith in a righteous God know this will not go on forever and ultimately justice will be done in all cases. And there are other 
challenging internal seeming contradictions like then I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But then later this. But he who is joined with all the living has hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion. And one of the best ones in Ecclesiastes to cause you to scratch your Bible-believing head. Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why destroy yourself? But as we will see, Ecclesiastes is on a firm foundation as the rest of the Bible, pointing us to God and ultimately to Christ. In this book, however, we will see what might seem like a split personality, a bipolar preacher. Sometimes God seems to be absent from his world. Other times he comes forward. But even then we see him somewhat dimly. Much of what the preacher speaks of regarding life and faith is brought out more clearly in the New Testament and as we go along today we will sometimes journey from the preacher's world into the New Testament world. So to set the stage for today's passage the preacher starts at the, at the beginning of this book saying that all is vanity. That is a loaded word he keeps repeating that means meaningless, futile, fleeting, empty, a mere vapor. And he says the world he sees is just a treadmill that seems to go on and on the same for centuries, no real change, that there is nothing new on earth. As the preacher says, nothing new under the sun. And that is an important point we need to make as we start out. The preacher combines this vanity that he describes all these endeavors and connects them with being done under the sun or under heaven and usually when he uses these expressions he is referring to an earthly life devoid of a belief in a loving omnipotent God caring for his creation. If, if as far as you are concerned you are living your life under the sun or under heaven then the basic message is God is not intervening in creation nor in anything that happens on earth and most certainly not in your life. You are on your own. He is not going to tell you what to do. So go live your vain life under the sun as you see fit. If I may use a bad pun, it is life under the sun, S-U-N, rather than life under the sun, S-O-N. Now, as I go through our passage for today, you will note that some of the quotes I use will be from secular writers, not from the Bible or theologians. The reason for this is because the vain life under the sun that the preacher describes in this book, written thousands of years ago, fits perfectly with so much modern thinking. It is so clearly reflected in the culture that it is uncanny. It confirms what Ecclesiastes starts out boldly proclaiming that there is nothing new under the sun, that what has been will be again. It is amazing that this book, in our, as our modern culture progresses, if I may use that word, becomes more and more relevant with each passing year, each passing new abandonment of God, of morality, of biblical principles. 
Recall Sergio's seminar, and we will see how well this book helps us to understand the world of today. For example, think of Paul's litanies of sins that he lists so frequently in the New Testament. Immorality, impurity, idolatry, jealousy, anger, envy, drunkenness, passions, covetous, slander. Paul's books are written 2,000 years ago, yet is there some newly invented sin that us sinful humans practice that Paul did not cover? No. There is indeed nothing new under the sun in that example. The preacher is ultimately correct and right up to date. Now commentator Michael Eaton in his book on Ecclesiastes answers the question, what is the purpose of Ecclesiastes? It is an essay in apologetics. It defends the life of faith in a generous God by pointing to the grimness of the alternative. The main point of my sermon today will be this. If one not only rejects the gospel, but even more, one thoroughly rejects the God of the Bible as the creator, sovereign, and sustainer of all things, then no matter how hard one may try or even pretend, this passage in Ecclesiastes describes their lot in this life. It is utter vanity. Conversely, if one has his hope and trust in the living God, then it flips all these things on their head and gives meaning to everything. Much of what the preacher points at here today says nothing in life really matters. But God says everything matters. As in Paul's proclamation that each of us will give an account of himself to God. Meaningless to meaningful. And so the preacher begins. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. So the preacher begins telling us he is the king over Israel. Whether this is Solomon or not, that point is still debated to this day, but it really doesn't matter. It is describing a son of David, a king of Israel, and in that we know he has tremendous resources. He insists here that wisdom will guide his entire investigation of life under heaven, that is, under the sun, or as we might say, apart from God. And he begins by attributing the type of life that every human being finds himself inserted into here on earth as God's doing. And the preacher starts with his usual pessimism that what God has given us to do as we live is really just an unhappy business. And he claims it to be vanity and a chasing after the wind even though he longs desperately to make sense of it all and control it to his liking. Then he confirms that God is ultimately in charge of the mess that he views since he insists that what is wrong or crooked can't be fixed by man nor can all that a human finds lacking in his life be counted on even the longest possible list. So now 
God fades to the background and does not reappear until the very end of our passage today. The preacher says God has started it. He wound it up. But even a secularist can see that somehow the world got this way, but is not really concerned with how. The preacher first is going to consider wisdom, pleasure, and possessions as ultimate, but he will be terribly frustrated under the sun. He goes on. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The preacher is obsessed with wisdom, as he should be to understand his perplexing life, even to figure out the alternative of madness and folly. But he concludes that it will not do. His wisdom only made his life under the sun seem more frustrating and crooked and lacking. The wisdom he gains only makes the grievous worldly evils he will later allude to more heart-wrenching. So he moves on. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. Now the preacher turns to the obvious that all of us do. He is going to indulge in the pleasures of the world. But says immediately what he found is that apart from God, under the sun, that it is vanity. In this section of 11 verses, he uses the I, me, mine 35 times. So it's all about personal indulgence. He tried laughter and wine drinking, being merry, a little folly. But then he said, what use is it? So he also turned to building and acquiring all that he could. He says he made great works, built houses, planted vineyards, gardens, parks, and pools. He had many slaves, herds, flocks, more than anyone in Jerusalem before him. He had silver and gold. He had all the arts included as well, singers and no doubt dancers and instruments. He even had many concubines, all the delights of a king. He says he denied himself no pleasure whatsoever. Now, let's remember that in this king proclaiming these things, this king who claims to be equal with Solomon, this king is closing the door on any improvement to pleasure-seeking or materialism. This is a man of unimaginable resources and wealth. He can do, possess, purchase, have, try, anything and everything that the world offers. And recall, there is nothing new, as this book says, under the sun today. It's all been tried before, and this preacher king has taken it all to the max. We could never improve on his experiences. He has done us the trouble of trying them all out for us and reporting back the vanity of it all under the sun. You see, Neither all that is Vegas, nor Cabo, nor your very own Nordstrom's, nor a giant mansion could equal it. Just one minor note about kingly wealth. And this preacher says he's as great as Solomon. Solomon's 
annual revenue just in gold alone, amongst all his other things, according to Second Kings in today's dollars, was one billion, with a B, billion dollars every single year. So he's got Donald Trump and most others beat by miles. Then verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So he says there is nothing to be gained under the sun. Please note again the nuance there, under the sun meaning apart from God. He feels like he's getting trapped in a box with no way out. Pleasure and materialism are failing him. So he goes on. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. He is going to consider wisdom once again. Compare it to madness and folly. And he does judge rightly as he concludes that wisdom is better than folly. There is gain in light rather than darkness. Yet still, God himself is out of sight at this point. He says in verse 13, that the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So he is on to something that the world shows him. The basic structure of the world that God has made works best when exercising wisdom rather than folly. But even though he discovers there is gain through wisdom, he then must follow it to its ultimate end under the sun. That the same event happens to all death. From verses 15 and 16. What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so wise? How the wise dies just like the fool. And this is the thing that stops the preacher in his tracks as it will continue to do throughout this book every single time. Death. It brings all his pursuits and striving to a final end under the sun. It steals all dignity from efforts to be wise, productive, faithful, honest, and courageous. It ruins the point of every project we undertake. The choices we make under the sun will ultimately be irrelevant. If secularists are right that we are destroying the planet, who cares? What difference does it make? Seems pretty depressing. There's more. Verse 16. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. So any hope the preacher has of his legacy living on or dashed as well since his efforts and wisdom will not be remembered by those to come. And he is then out of ideas, places to go for his life under the sun. So verse 17, So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all his vanity and his striving after wind. Maybe his offspring might benefit from all his efforts under the sun. Maybe that would make a circular life worthwhile. But verses 18 and 19. I must leave it to the man who will come after me and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. 
Yet he will be master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom for under the sun. How did that work out for Solomon, for example? His son Rehoboam listened to the advice of his youthful friends rather than the older counselors and drove the northern kingdom away. There were wars in the division of the kingdom. Recall the good king Josiah, one of the last kings of Judah. This is what the Lord said about him in 2 Kings. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses. So he accomplished a complete turnaround of the evil practices in the southern kingdom. Yet it says that after him his son Jehoaz was made king and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and he was dethroned. Then another of Josiah's son was made king and he also did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So then as we go on here in our text into verse 20, it gives us the preacher's conclusion. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. So where have we gotten so far this morning? All this vanity under the sun. The preacher has tried pleasure and it was, well, pleasurable. But ultimately chasing the wind. He tried materialism and consuming things and was also of some reward, but seemed to him like vanity in the end. And wisdom was better than folly, but it made the understanding of the vanity of life under the sun more clear. And even then, if he lives a life of wisdom and honor, he just dies in the end, same as the immoral, mad fool. So it's no wonder that in these verses we read here, they are packed with words like, Hated life, no rest, vanity, perplexed, despair, sorrow, evil. What we have just described is the reality of secular life. It is not necessarily an entirely atheistic view that there is no one out there who created all these things, but rather that wherever it all came from, what you see is what you get that there is nothing transcendent beyond your experiences in life. A secular humanist lives his life by human reason alone, using scientific type observations and philosophy. It's do-it-yourself living. But when you do it yourself, you have to admit to yourself in secret that using all that God has given us as the end in itself, the final reward is vanity, chasing the wind. So you keep trying until the day you die chasing the wind. Kinder, in his book on Ecclesiastes, paints an appropriately depressing picture of that life. When you learn to laugh at everything, you are soon left with nothing worth the bother of a laugh. Triviality is more stifling than tragedy, and the shrug is the most hopeless of all comments on life. So before we get to the turning point in these last three verses this morning, 
which takes a radical turn away from this secularism and points to God as being ultimate rather than the idols of experience and materialism, let's see how well the preacher's life he has described up to this point fits perfectly with human experience apart from God. If we go to the musings of mankind over the years from many different sources, we will be amazed that Ecclesiastes perfectly predicts how life under the sun will turn out. For example, many would say that the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who lived in the 1800s, was the father of postmodernism. We could go on for hours about him and get really depressed, but Nietzsche concluded about life. In the consciousness of the truth he has perceived, man now sees everywhere only the awfulness or the absurdity of existence and loathing seizes him. And how about Shakespeare from Macbeth? Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And then, of course, we must haul out a quote about his godless life, Ernest Hemingway. Life is just a dirty trick. A short journey from nothingness to nothingness. There is no remedy for anything in life. Man's destiny in the universe is like a colony of ants on a burning log. And perhaps our favorite modern thinker, more of a true atheist, Christopher Hitchens, whose observations about what he saw in the world under the sun gave him this ecclesiastical conclusion. What kind of designer or creator is so wasteful and capricious and approximate What kind of designer or creator is so cruel and indifferent? And of course, culture is filled to overflowing with this view of life so perfectly predicted by Ecclesiastes. Do we need to quote brilliant philosophers or Shakespeare only? No. Pop culture says it as well as anyone. From boyhood, I always remembered a particular song because it had a very catchy tune But the words always puzzled me as a kid since the lady seemed so thoroughly disappointed with secular life. If you listen to it, though, it is predicted exactly by Ecclesiastes. The last few lines of the song could have been written by the preacher himself. The end of the number one song in America on a top 40 billboard chart when I was a kid. I know what you must be saying to yourselves. If that's the way she feels about it, why doesn't she just end it all? Oh, oh no, not me. I'm in no hurry for that final disappointment. Because I know, just as well as I'm standing here talking to you, that when that final moment comes and I'm breathing my last, I'll be saying to myself, is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. 
let's break out the booze and have a ball if that's all there is. Somehow that must have resonated with millions of Americans. And what it's alluding to still does today, just as it did thousands of years ago when Ecclesiastes was written. Can you see the pattern here? If there is no personal, living, saving, judging God, if this is all there is, then one can busy themselves with what has been created, however that happened, but in the end, he must face its vanity, its meaninglessness. But now, we turn a corner in our text. God comes fully back into the picture now. Verses 24 and 25. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So we must be careful that we don't think the preacher is contradicting all he said about life under the sun apart from God up to this point. The key words here are, for apart from Him, that is God, who can do these things? So before this, the preacher exposed the vanity of pretending to be autonomous from God. So now he points us to God and to the life of faith in Him. But this is not an evangelistic call to faith, to God's salvation, to Christ, to the ultimate concern of life after death. Rather, this is a call to eat and drink and find enjoyment in work. What exactly does that mean? Well, recall before the fall that Adam walked with God and enjoyed his creation. It means satisfaction, joy, and companionship. In 1 Kings chapter 4, we get a description of what the preacher is trying to say by a summary of living in Solomon's glorious time. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. And elsewhere in Ecclesiastes, this eating and drinking and joy in God are repeated in chapter 9. Go! Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. So enjoyment of life, described as eating, drinking, even toiling in our work, as the preacher calls it, is God's gift to us. And the preacher makes it clear that if it is without God as ultimate in the midst of it, then it is a vapor. What spoils enjoying the simple things God has given us in life is not that they are not pleasurable in themselves, but that certainly for the unbeliever and even us as believers, we can try to squeeze more out of them than they can give or were meant to give. To essentially make them an end in themselves, an idol, apart from seeing they are God's gifts. You see, pleasure is not the normal state of man. We live in a fallen world and sin surrounds and infects everything. Pleasure is happiness, delight, and joy. 
But that is, let's be honest, not the normal state of mankind. So we seek those things out. And the things God has made for us in life do help provide that. But in and of themselves, they are fleeting, chasing after the wind. Only if we see God as the provider that He is ultimate do fleeting pleasures become other than vanity. The pleasures come and go, but God remains forever. When the immediate legitimate joy of eating and drinking fade, there is God, the giver of joy, still there. And is there not a shadow of the gospel here? That God is the one coming to His helpless creation? That we as humans can't do anything right without Him. We need to be rescued. Whether from living in vanity for nothing more than this life, or from our sin that permanently separates us from Him apart from Christ. All this is antithetical to a very famous New Testament passage of Paul's. When he is mocking the unbeliever who is trying to suck all he can get out of this life since there's nothing else. 1 Corinthians. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Sounds just like the preacher here in Ecclesiastes describing life under the sun. Looking forward to the New Testament at this point is helpful, like many things here in Ecclesiastes, because Paul makes the fruitfulness of toiling in work even more clear when he says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. But what does Jesus seem to say about our eating and drinking, about our enjoying our life? When he is about to give his life as a sacrifice for sin, he says, anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. But here Jesus is speaking of the relative position of this life God has given us. We eat, drink, work, and live joyfully thanking God while at the same time hating it, very important, in comparison to Christ Himself as our great reward. Now, Let's think about the preachers enjoying God's gifts of eating and drinking, seeing they are from God. Let's admit that everything that exists was created by God and, of course, was ultimately created to glorify Himself. So the act of eating and drinking is not something God thought up later to make the physical body He created keep humming along it is all part of a perfectly crafted creation like every other tiny detail of His creation that ultimately points back to God. A passage from the prophet Isaiah, a metaphor for God's saving call to us, somehow combines the idea of God's material blessings while always recalling they point to Him. God says to us, 
Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. And have you also noticed that our eating and drinking and working are tasks that we repeat every day? Doesn't the preacher's message to us that we should enjoy it as a gift from God go perfectly with Jesus saying this to us in Matthew? Not to worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. But seek first His kingdom and these things will be given to you because each day has enough trouble of its own. And of course, when Paul is speaking to the Corinthians, he condemns eating and drinking while recognizing false gods. He exhorts them, rather in their eating and drinking, to do it all to the glory of the real God when he says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And then the preacher ends the passage, verse 26, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner who has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. We may think, well, the one who pleases God does not always have such a wonderful life. Hard and fast rule, no. Like most things in Ecclesiastes, on the one hand this, on the other hand that. But recall Jesus' parable in Luke about the man with ten minas who diligently lived his life to the glory of his master versus the one who did not. Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has more, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And also, Hebrews 11 concludes with this. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So is what I'm saying some type of prosperity gospel? A message saying, Jesus will give you a better life. No, this message is making the opposite point. That if you say, whatever you've got for me, God, no thanks. Then this message says, here is your fate. Will I be depressing as I come toward the end? Yes. Will I do like the preacher and end like this book on an ecclesiastical downer? Yes. This is the bottom line. Here, unbeliever, that's who I'm speaking to, is the gospel. Jesus Christ 
the Son of God lived a perfect life without sin, then bore your sins on the cross as the perfect sacrifice so that the judgment due you would rather be on him. Then he rose again, ascended to heaven, and will return to bring final judgment. And these facts must be received on the basis of faith, not by you doing anything to or for God to make any improvements to this way of salvation that he alone offers to you. And should you reject this gospel, this salvation, then we warn you of the wrath to come upon you. And so we plead that gospel message to each and every person. But if you say, that's okay, no thanks. I will just live this life here on earth. I don't need your gospel. Don't know or care about hell. Rather, I will enjoy all this good stuff that is in this creation. Then fine. Ecclesiastes has a message for you. Ecclesiastes says, enter in. The preacher is warning you that even if you disbelieve the truth of the wrath you will experience in eternal judgment, in the meantime, your attempts at the good life here on earth, though at times seeming successful, will ultimately prove futile if you will give it any real thought. And this lack of real thought is predicted perfectly by Paul in Romans. People are simply suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Paul says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. But if you ignore God and say, I'm doing good, I'm, I'm doing good, and seem to be making some headway in the midst of it, death will ultimately put an end to it. Like the grim reaper in Dickens' Christmas Carol, you will busy yourself with life. But if Ecclesiastes ever stopped you dead in your tracks, like the reaper, it will, like him, point you to your ultimate future when you will say, vanity, all of it was vanity. I was only chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. You see, God has placed you in a box and you can't really escape. Yes, it's crooked. Yes, it's lacking. But it's His world. You're breathing God's air, being warmed by His sun, walking on His earth, enjoying God-given pleasures. And the alternative in this life to believing, knowing, and obeying God has been made clear here by the preacher. So you come to the end of your life under the sun and you will say, like most obituaries say, I've lived a good one. Did lots. I had a zeal for life. You and those you've lived a good, happy, productive, secular life with. And then ultimately, one of your secular friends will die. You'll say, he lived a good life too. You'll celebrate their life, a life well lived. No real need for God. Nothing transcendent beyond all those great experiences. 
But if the preacher is right, and I think he is, on the inside you'll really be saying, stiff upper lip now, I have that empty feeling that it's all vanity. I'm still chasing the wind. And as you stand graveside, the funeral ending and prepare for the wake, they may even be singing a rousing chorus of amazing grace, how sweet the sound. But you, if you're honest, on the real inside, when you look down at that coffin, you'll be singing, is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball, if that's all there is. Father, we, we know and acknowledge You are the Creator. You are sovereign over all creation and events of life. Thank You, Lord, that there is a way out of a life of vanity. God, let no one in this room miss the way. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, who saves and places us on a path of a true life, a redeemed life that has meaning in glorifying You. A life that ends not in vanity, but in that ultimate reward of seeing and worshiping and serving You, Jesus Christ, for all eternity because of Your great salvation and love that You offer to each of us.